This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to Oh What a Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was as awful as it seems. I'm Ellis James. I'm Tom Crane. And I'm Chris Skull. Each week we're looking at a brand new subject. And this episode we're going to be discussing laws. From cruel punishments for crying in ancient Rome to bizarre 14th century food laws before finally the weirdest beard and bachelor laws throughout history. And this is episode two of Oh What a Time, our history podcast, which was in the UK for a few days this week, the number one history podcast in the land. How does Dan Snow feel about this? Well, I uh, I met him once. He was uh, we were both backstage at an awards ceremony. He seemed like a really really nice bloke. Immediately thrust out his hand uh, by way of greeting and said, "Hello, I'm Dan. Nice to meet you." I just stared at him. And that stare said, my tanks are on your lawn, Dan. I'm, I'm, com- I'm coming for you. I am coming for that number, w- that coveted number one history podcast in the UK for a bit slot. Those, those tanks may not stay on your lawn for more than a week, and you, they may sort of, you know, they'll go further into the distance as the weeks go away, and then you'll have your lawn back. Your lawn will be completely yours by week three. But for that first week... <laughs> But genuinely, thank you so much for all the support and for getting back behind the show and, and telling your friends. It's kind of it's it's amazing, Chris. It, it, it really matters. What, what's the other thing they need to do? What do they need to do? They need to leave a five star oh, review yeah, they, and subscribe. To, of course, I thought it was going to be something like you know go onto Dan Snow's law and intimidate him or look him. No, you know, no, 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 yeah, no, yeah, no, don't no, do leave that. Leave Dan out of this. <laughs> leave Dan out. For God's sake. He's, he's done nothing wrong. <laughs> For God's nice sake. Nice bloke. <laughs> um, but yeah, leave a, leave a rain and review. Why not? If you've enjoyed it, Five Star, it really helps. It really helps us uh, keep up the good fight to remain on the lawn of Dan Snow. So uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> we actually asked uh, for you to leave some reviews on La- in Latin last week, and some of you brilliant listeners did do that. Do you want to guess what this means? Uh, Valde ridiculum informatavim pod. Allium magnam additionum ad jacobum tormentum. Do you want to guess what that is? In- an informative, ridiculous podcast. Uh, very, very handsome men should go into face mobbling. <laughs> How close? Ridic- ridiculum informatum. I don't need Google Translate for that, mate. Uh, genuinely impressive, Ellis. It, it was a very funny, informative pod. And another yes. great addition to Jacob's arsenal. I didn't re- realise that the word pod was much used in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> So, Chris, thank you for all your emails as well. Kelsey, Kelsey Lauren Ellington has been on saying, why don't you do an episode on the Yorkshire Bogart, a kind of malevolent beast from folklore that resides in Yorkshire? That's a, that's a really good idea. 
And what that's a that's super a great idea. idea. Yeah. I love that. Mark McCready's been on. What about transport? Keep those emails coming in, guys. Hello at ohwhatatimepod.com. Send in your episode ideas. We're definitely going to pick up on a few of them in future. Send in your episode ideas and any periods in, of history you find particularly interesting. Absolutely. Because I think the three of us are stuck in a rut. <laughs> it's episode two. <laughs> <laughs> so... If you want to get in touch with the show, here is award-winning actor David Bradley to tell you how. All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at com, and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ohwhatatimepod. Now, clear off. So, laws-wise, this week, what are we looking at? Chris, what are you looking at? I'm discussing punishments for crying in ancient Roman China during the Qin Dynasty. And I will be talking about bizarre and unfair 14th century food laws. There's a lot of them, and they're weird. And Ellis? And I will be discussing the strangest, weirdest beard and bachelor laws throughout history. Perfect. Let's do it. Okay, so this week we're talking about laws. I'm talking specifically about laws against crying in public, specifically in ancient Rome and Imperial China's founding Qin Dynasty. Tears were regarded as a public nuisance and so banned with various punishments accompanying the prohibition, ranging from fines to the humiliation of having one's eyebrows shaved off. Well, like they're on a rugby trip. Like you've like you've fallen foul to the to the naughty boys at the back of the minibus. Yeah. Okay. So so this is a this is a Chinese punishment. But around when, Chris? Well, here we go. Look, I'm going to I'm going to walk through it. We'll start in ancient Rome. The Twelve Tables of Rome, a list of a Roman citizen's rights and duties, published in 449 BC, outlawed crying and weeping for women at funerals. Table X, or I'm going to trot out some Roman for you now. Table ten. Commanded that women shall not t- tear their cheeks, so nor shall they Stephen utter- Fry, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> women shall not tear their cheeks, nor shall they utter loud cries bewailing the dead. Now, apparently the Roman law was designed to prevent, get this, professional actors from being employed to amplify displays of grief at funerals, all part of the competition for and presentation of status in the Republic. So people were hiring professional actors to mourn in the obviously the most emotive ways imaginable yep. as part of a kind of a presentation of status for the deceased. Yeah, I'll be doing that. That's my, that's my dying <laughs> wish, in fact. I want a, th- a thousand actors at my funeral, all... Weeping, so what screaming. The funeral of a North Korean dictator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what sort of level actor as well? Are they sort of like ITV drama minimum? Are you looking? Are you, are Oscar you, are you, winners. Oscar winners. All Oscar winners. Os- Oscar winners. <laughs> are they, are they, I want them all to be to be wailing and screaming. A version of he was such a gifted podcaster. Yeah, <laughs> this is such a shame. It was a newish medium when he got involved with it, and he was—he was obviously wasn't the first. He'd been good for about ten years before he dipped his toe in. But my God, 
What such an instinctive podcaster. And that's what but, they, they're yelling that, are they? They're yelling that. Well, all 1,000 are yelling. Just, they just, they're, they're, it's yeah. not like a set script. It's just they, they improv around the idea of the fact they, that you were yeah, a good, yeah. good they, podcast. They, yeah. That's the note. <laughs> that's the note. And I'll see just, you know, you're all talented people. Well, you know, like uh, they're hiring professional actors for, to mourn at a funeral. Do you think there's a casting day? Do you think some actors are auditioning? Yep. Do you think certain actors have the reputation for really bawling yeah. their eyes out? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's, obviously there are certain parts in dramas or sitcoms or any acting role where you need a certain look. And I've always thought that if you then turn up to the audition room and there's like, 12 people next to you who all look a little bit like you. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, right. I, uh, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm that bloke. I'm sort of, yeah, I'm, 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 sc- I'm scraggly ill guy. <laughs> Here are the other 11 scraggly ill guys. <laughs> my, my type whenever I did auditions was always just like quite an average generic man. <laughs> but there wasn't anything particular. It was just like you know, secondary person walking past in the background of a Kellogg's advert, who's not yeah. really going to distract you from the from the cereal. I used to get uh, positive and Welsh was my one, <laughs> and someone sent me a casting the other a casting breakdown the other day, and it said we would like the person who gets this role to be positive and Welsh, a bit like Ellis James. And I thought, well, give me the bloody role. Then. <laughs> I'll do it. I haven't got anything on. A bit like Ellis James, not completely like Ellis James. Yeah, yeah. A bit like Ellis James. I mean, I mean, I'm interviewing actors who are going to cry at my funeral. I've got, I've, I've got literally nothing on. What was the logic behind this? So they, they felt the outpouring of grief was just sort of like it was, it was unseemly. Unseemly, that there was a competition. theatrical. Okay, really. Okay, right. Yeah. So what, what's interesting about it? it was just women. By contrast, men were allowed to cry whenever they liked and often did so in times of heightened political tension. Julius Caesar is said to have famously wept before his troops before cross- crossing the Rubicon in 49 BC. Right. Now, that is interesting that it's, uh, that it's permissible for the lads and not the women. Yeah, in ancient Rome. I find any rules, whenever we've discuss stuff like this on this podcast. Any rule that's sort of based around the suppression of emotion, I find quite odd because if I'm going to cry, I'm going to cry. In this, I've never been able to stop it. Yeah, absolutely. Hence, some difficult years at secondary school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am a crier, and I, I go further than that. I'd say that I actually I quite enjoy a cry sometimes. Yeah, so I... When you're having sex. <laughs> I'm just so moved by the fact it's actually happening. Um, so I um, I will watch, I will seek out programmes like Secret Millionaire and Claire will always say, he'll point at me and say, oh, he's gone. And there's always a point yeah. where I start to cry. And more than that, my favourite YouTube videos are, I like watching videos of soldiers returning from war and surprising their kids at school. So they'll, they'll yes. like open the book and the kid will look up from the desk and their dad's back from wherever and they just, you know, they hug and it's tear central. Yeah. And I always, that makes me cry. And I actively seek this stuff out because I find it sort of weirdly cathartic to cry. I think there's nothing wrong with that, Tom. Thank you. Since I've had kids, I've cried a lot more. And it's very embarrassing, though, what I cry about. It tends to be sport sporting montages will make me cry 
a very good key change in a pop song. Oh. <laughs> Normally the X Factor's winner's song, which when gets comes to number one, there'll be a crucial yes. key change in it. I hate the rest of the song, but there'll be a key change in it. It'll really get yeah. my tear ducts going. Lots of tears. People with normal backgrounds uh, getting the chance to live their dream yes. makes me cry. Yeah. So, for instance, the classic one, which would be on something like Britain's Got Talent or The X Factor, is a club singer, maybe someone who's done social clubs and working men's clubs. And it can obviously sing, but never got a chance. And Simon Cowell says, I'm taking you on. Yeah. We're going through to judges' houses or whatever. And I'd be like, oh, my God. She was doing a social club in Burnley last night, and now she's going to have a record deal. The song that makes me cry is uh, Slipping Through My Fingers by ABBA. Is, <laughs> is just gets me every time. No, you know, it's about, obviously, it's about the, her daughter growing up and, you know, the time is slipping through her fingers. She's growing up and, you know, kids. And that's something that happens since I've become a dad. Just the, the, the passage of time. It's, so pa- yeah. it's pathetic. Fairy tale of New York. So much so that I can make myself cry by singing it. <laughs> I've done that before. I've been stood alone in a room and I've sung it around Christmas time and I've started crying myself. <laughs> so, but happily... In in the Roman Empire, we're all getting away with it. This is absolutely <laughs> yeah. fine. Okay, but fine. No, no, we're fine. All right, but yeah. the, here comes the bad news, okay? Oh. Say say the DeLorean accidentally dropped us off in the Qin Dynasty in ancient China, 221 to 206 BC. Right. The sight of men crying was enough to cause the otherwise tyrannical emperor, Qin Shi Huang, an addict of warrior codes and martial behaviour, to issue an edict banning them for any adult man or any child tall enough to pass for an adult. This is the interesting thing about the Qin Dynasty, that anyone under four foot eleven uh, and women under four foot eight could not be convicted of any crime, even crying. What? So, so if you went to court, they just have one of those things they have by a roller coaster at like Thorpe Park, <laughs> <laughs> and you're absolutely fine if you're lower than that. So what? Yeah. Four foot eleven? You murder. You murder fifty people. Policeman comes up with a tape measure. Ah. A lot of the women in my family are under four foot eight. So, so I come from a crime dynasty <laughs> and it's a very similar rule in West Wales. I, I live in a massive house, big swimming pool, all paid for by the criminal pursuits of my very, very, very short aunties. Because <laughs> my, mo- my mother is five foot half an inch, but I think she might be smaller than that now. She reckons she's shrinking. My auntie Peg was four foot seven. So, yeah, a one-woman crime spree in Aberystwyth. So your mother's just yeah. over five foot now, but she's yeah. shrinking. So if she'd lived in ancient China, if she sort of waited a few years, she could have, she just could start, she could start a crime career by the time she, when she hits 80. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just counting down the inches, going, next year, I'm going to kill my neighbour. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing they can do about it. Okay, so, yeah. so short, shorter people could get away with anything, yeah. including crying. They're allowed to cry. Including yeah. crying. So the 18 Laws of Chin, a legal code written onto bamboo canes decreed that any man found crying and so presenting his weakness in public was to be humiliated. So you were subjected to a ritual and that involved having your beard and your eyebrows shaved off. Well, good thing they didn't have the uh, closing montage of BBC Sports Personality of the Year on YouTube in, the, uh, in that ancient Chinese dynasty because I would be in a big trouble. <laughs> Uh, so the idea in ancient China is they want to impose standards of emotional decorum, yeah, uh, as well as to remind different political factions 
who was in charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, always tend to work so well, don't they? Um, you know, ins- insisting on uh, very, very rigid uh, forms of emotional behaviour. In my experience, that tends to go really, really well, and everyone loves it, <laughs> and everyone thrives. <laughs> in ancient Italy, in ancient Rome specifically, uh, medieval Italian authorities, when they were banning crime, believed that public displays of grief, especially weeping and wailing, could lead to other emotions. So, like, crime was a gateway drug to kind of public disorder. So from crying, uh, it would they thought it would lead to anger, outrage. And so laws imposed on crying thus served to stave off wider outbursts and prevent the potential collapse of public order. Wow. Yeah. Do you think people were sneaking off for a little cry on their own? Because <laughs> that's what you do, isn't it? Surely you'd go off, you'd sit in your toilet for a bit and you'd, you'd have a little Keyword, cry. You? Like, and yeah. You'd sing fairy tale of New York to yourself in the toilet. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. the door busts open, in come the fuzz. <laughs> yeah. Are you crying? You'd be by the stage door of your local theatre during a production, <laughs> thinking, no one is gonna no one is gonna find me here. <laughs> I don't I don't think I could stop it. I think I think I would just have to accept the eyebrows being shaved. Yeah, yeah. Like, Alright then. Alright, they'll grow back eventually. I never like my beard anyway. I wonder to what extent, you know, if you were looking for a female companion, for example, and they saw you without beard and without eyebrows, they'd think there's a guy who's connected with his emotions. Is that actually, you know, yeah. that's a positive. He looks like a good listener. <laughs> wow. Okay. So there you go, crying. So I'm going to take you, if you'll allow me, back to 14th century England. Can I just say, of all the of all the places we go back to, 14th century England is very low down on my list of places <laughs> I'd like to go. This may, this may not be the podcast for you, Chris, because we'll be going back there a lot, I imagine. <laughs> it is a horrendous time to live. It fills me with dread whenever we go back there. Do you reckon they, were, they used to, they, when they sort of became of age... You know, not when they were born or when they were little kids. But maybe once you became a teenager, you thought, do you reckon you thought to yourself, this is a shit time to be alive. <laughs> 600 years into the future will be better than this. But everyone, at every point in history, as we do now, assumes that we are living at the forefront, the most exciting, that we are in the future. We, we, this is a hard thing to explain. We are in the future now because we have, you know, electric cars and all this sort of stuff. But in 14th century England, where they were sort of, heating a turnip over a fire, they'd have been thinking, <laughs> what a life, what an age. We listen, This is no, the future. Look at that heat. I'm not sure. Because you've got antiquity over your shoulder. You've got ancient Rome, ancient Greece. You know, you've got aqueducts and you think? You know, roasted okay. venison. Yeah, and also there'd be, you know, a lot of oral histories. I reckon they were sitting around eating their turnips going, I think the Romans, and they, they were around quite a long time ago, I think they had a thing called central heating. <laughs> Is that, is, that, is that better than this? Central heating and and roads that were very straight. That seems to be cent- central heating. Central heating. Is that better than having to shove my hands and feet into the mud for some kind of warmth? <laughs> Before we go back there, would you would you would you like a sound effect? Shall I do a little sound effect to take us back yeah. through? Yes, please. Okay. So we're now in 14th century England, when, as you'll know, King Edward III was in power. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. So. The potato guy. The potato guy. Now, what, what's <laughs> crucial about this time is it was a time when England was basically trying to get a grip on its resources ahead of a sort of an upcoming war against France. So it was trying to control its money 
and its resources as much as possible. And one of the ways that they did this is the king and those in power passed laws which impacted the way people lived and the way that they spent their money. And a major area they did this in was in food. So I'm going to talk to you a bit about 14th century food laws because they're absolutely mad. Okay, the key one that started all was in 1336 when the king issued a decree which banned people eating more than two courses in any meal. (laughs) <laughs> so it was illegal to eat three courses. <laughs> right. I could do it. I could do this law. Right. Okay. Know? Well, I've been thinking about it. First question would be, which two courses are you going for? Which which courses get in the boot? Because that's very very individual. Well, thing. it's a very different question in 1400. Because I don't imagine there's much by way of dessert. You know, no one's whipping up an angel delight. What was the tiramisu scene like? <laughs> there was fruit. <laughs> If you turned up in 14th century England with an angel delight, you were getting burned as a witch. Well, it could go one of two ways. They'd either think you were a god, and yeah, you, yeah. you'd be lead, you, you, they'd say, "Well, you now run the country." Yeah. Or you're right. You'd be dunked in a dunked in a river and told you were a yeah. witch. Yeah. So what what dessert are you bringing back to 14th century England to most blow people's minds? Creme brulee. Creme brulee. Yeah. A little chef Mississippi mud cake. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> what about Colin the caterpillar? That birthday cake. Oh yeah, so sweet. Exactly. Can you imagine what that would do to the <laughs> to the palate of a fourteenth century English person. It'd blow your blow your head off. <laughs> uh, they, they, they would have such a rush of excitement with their Colin the caterpillar cake, and then they would be depressed for the rest of their lives because they yeah. would know they would never be that happy or high again. Wouldn't be able to handle it. Yeah. For me, if you're interested, I would get rid of pudding. That would be the one that I'd get rid of. For me, okay. it would definitely be starter in Maine. That, but that's, that's, that's yes, me. I think me too, actually. I don't know. It doesn't say if there's any rules. You know that situation where you, you go to a restaurant, and you're, but you're running short of time. You've got to go and watch a film or something. And you say to the waiter, just, just let it, it can all just come out at once. <laughs> I don't know if that was one of the loopholes you could use. <laughs> Constantly having to pretend that you're off to see Avatar 2. <laughs> So it, it, it's it's three and a half hours long, and um, yeah, it it starts in twenty minutes. So yeah, just bring it all. Bring out the fruit, once. the pheasant, and the turnip at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> three different flavors of ice cream and the potted pigeon. Yeah, it's fine. So they did this thing. So it, you couldn't have more than two courses in any meal. The king, they think, probably didn't stick to it himself. It's worth saying. Um, for example, when he went to his cousin's Sunday roast. In May 1340. I love the fact they know that. Went to, went to his cousins for a Sunday roast. <laughs> Sounds like it happened a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> his cousin for a Sunday roast. Yeah, and it, it was too much hassle, so they're going to the pub next time. Yeah. They out. They're washing up. They didn't eat until four. And what, what is a meal that you have at four o'clock? It's, not, it's too early for dinner. It's too late for lunch. The kids yeah. are hungry. The meat they started was drinking at midday, and it's still, the food still wasn't served till four. She'd only yeah, got yeah, two yeah. bottles of Oyster Bay, and that wasn't enough for everyone. <laughs> it was too much hassle. So, at this Sunday roast, which happened in May 1340, <laughs> this is what was served. There were 20 different kinds of meat and fish served at the Sunday roast. 20 different? Beef and I, veal. I can't name 20 kinds of meat. Beef and veal from three oxen and 13 calves. Ham, bacon and pork from 15 pigs and piglets, plus three dishes of boar. Six deer... Five swans, five spoonbills. Oh, not no, more spoonbill. I'm full of no more spoons, please. <laughs> and three bitterns. Oh, here comes the spoonbill course. 
<laughs> and the best of all, the final one, if someone served this final one at a Sunday row, so I went to one of yours and you brought this out, I would leave immediately, and I think you'd agree. An eighth of a porpoise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they... What they, whether they were eating it or they were sort of using the blowhole as like a dip dip tray for the horseradish sauce. Where are they getting, are they getting porpoise from? They only got an eighth of one. <laughs> so maybe an eighth of one washed up on a beach. I don't know where the rest of it was. <laughs> so an eighth of porpoise um, is what the king had that day. So he wasn't sticking to things. Um, but things didn't stop there. This was just the start. Basically, this started torrent of different laws being released in his effort to try and control the way people ate and and therefore the money they were spending so later during the reign of elizabeth i another statute was added to that law aimed at restricting the consumption of meat and fish days were introduced now these added to existing religious habits so that between 1563 and 1585 every wednesday friday and saturday and all of lent and various other days it was illegal to eat meat so you were not allowed to eat meat on a Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. We talked earlier about people crying in the toilet. I think that realistically there'll be another situation where people are sneaking into their toilet to eat sausages here, aren't they? That's kind of what, <laughs> that's what you're looking at once again. There's nothing like a toilet sausage, is there? It was like the iPhone of the day. <laughs> the, the, odd, the odd kids at primary school, the weird kids who would eat apples in the toilet at, at mm. break time. And I was just thinking to myself, lads, eat it at the playground. It's not even raining. You're eating your apple next to you, rain. It's weird. Do you know what? I could definitely eat a sausage in a toilet. Yeah. But then I thought, <laughs> could I eat a sausage in a four, in a 1400s England toilet, you know? The smell. Yeah. Well, imagine a toilet in 1400. If you think about it, it is the perfect thing because you can hide the sausage in the uh, the inner roll of a toilet roll as well. It's perfect. It's perfectly <laughs> shaped. So you can have your toilet it- sausage waiting for you for when you go in and no one will know, it, know it's in there. Yeah. So... It could have been worse, though, because uh, weirdly, the choice wasn't quite as restricted as it could have been, uh, because meat at this time referred to beef, lamb and mutton. Weirdly, fish also encompassed veal, game and poultry, as well as eels. So chicken was classed as a fish, which would be quite annoying if you were a chicken, you thought you were about to get off the hook. And then suddenly somebody tells you you're a fish, so you're still (laughs) edible. Uh, Don't feel like a fish. (laughs) (laughs) You're a land fish, mate. Hmm. However, the problem was, even with this law, people soon started to disregard it. Uh, and it got to a point where butchers who sold meat were threatened with the loss of their license, which feels a little bit harsh. I mean, I think it's quite a fundamental thing that a butcher should be allowed to do, is to sell yeah. meat. <laughs> yeah. I imagine they were making most of their money from like the other stuff you get in sort of snazzy butchers today, which would be like pots of mint jelly and hardback books on the art of barbecuing, that sort of stuff. <laughs> If you go to a ginger pig, I mean, how are you how are you keeping yourself afloat as a medieval butcher if you're not selling meat? It feels like you haven't got the other sort of slightly pretentious, gentrified yeah. things around it. What are your options? Gravy, yeah, gravy, broth. Well, that contains meat, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that all you're counts. Out. Yeah, absolutely, gutted. So they also try to control it. You talk about we talk about police there. They started something called the Meat Watch at various gates around <laughs> cities where they did indeed have meat inspectors who would check you for meat as you came into cities. I've got a little list of three meats here, and I'd like you to tell me where you'd hide them on your person as you're entering a city. <laughs> okay. okay. Sausages, where are they going? In the old pants. In the pants, yeah. But around uh, the back, like I'd had an accident. What if you could tape them to your fingers? It's an option. It's an option. And then put gloves over the top. 
They put gloves <laughs> on the top. Bosh. Uh, scotch egg? Uh, in the pants, down the front. Down the front, okay, yeah. Two scotch eggs. Two scotch eggs and a sausage down the front of the pants. <laughs> Sorry. I look like a well hung man who's had an accident. <laughs> Uh, and finally, leg of lamb. I thought I'd chuck in a big one. Hmm. Stick it down your trousers, haven't you? You've got to stick it down your trousers. Yeah. Too big, I think. Leg of lamb. <laughs> big hat. Up the jumper, I think. Up the jumper. Okay. What if you yeah. could fashion uh, a new face out of the meat you're trying to smuggle in? So, you you know, scotch eggs for eyes, sausages just around you, like your jawline. If, I think if the meat police are worth their salt, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to get away with that. You're not going to get away with that. That's day one of meat police school. Oh, wow, the meat police. Yeah. That's a job I think I could do, actually. I think I could be a member of the meat police. Yeah, yeah. Say, you, say you bust someone for, for meat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Confiscate the meat. You're eating the meat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like... Oh, they've all got incredibly high blood pressure in the meat police. <laughs> Interesting fact about the meat police is that if they arrested you... They, rather than handcuffs, they would tie your hands behind your back using a string of sausages <laughs> <laughs> that they'd taken from you. They'd use the different meats to apprehend you. They'd take you to the prison and all the bars in the jail would be made of sausages. Made of sausages, yeah. yeah you've read about this. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's quite right. The bed would be made of mince. I'm arresting you on suspicion of having a uh, pork chop about your person. <laughs> Yeah, I think I could do that. I think I could do it. What I find so fascinating with these laws as well is that I've been reading a, a, a biography, I should say, of Clement Attlee. And so many of the things, like aspects of the welfare state and stuff, that we have today that we take for granted. You know, the NHS, for instance, is probably the best example. They didn't get round to that, but they did get round to all of these weird crap meaningless pointless yeah yeah it's like the meat the meat police you, you kind of think what were your bloody what were your priorities yeah what a strange what a strange country what a, well not just England, but i mean it's all it's always so weird isn't it the stuff that they were well i suppose so many of the laws were not really about trying to help society in any way i suppose that's the shift you say a lot of these things that they didn't yeah. get around to if you look at them it really is a lot often, often about the aristocracy and those with wealth preserving their yes. lifestyle and a lot, I imagine a lot of this is really about they, they want to keep the meat for themselves and make sure that the yeah. pheasant population isn't being gobbled by the serfs or whatever. <laughs> it's, 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 it's selfish behaviour from the wealthy. Um, that's kind of really what it is, isn't it? Yeah, still, it did lead us down a very whimsical cul-de-sac where I'm now going to imagine being a member of the meat police probably for the rest of the evening. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, well, I'm discussing beards and bachelors. Now, something I hadn't realised, taxes on, on beards have been around for centuries. So the most famous example is the one introduced by Peter the Great, the Tsar of Russia in 1705. So nobles were compelled to pay 100 rubles for the privilege of keeping their beard, whereas ordinary people had to pay a single kopeck whenever they came into town. So you'd go into town bearded, and you'd have to pay a single kopeck. Yeah, sorry, mate, I, I, I had that time to shave. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> so the idea was to impose an image change on Russian society, turning Russia into a sort of modern, clean-shaven European society rather than a traditional inward-looking and thus bearded one. So failure yeah. to pay meant the time in prison doing hard labour. So Peter was not the first person to come up with the idea of taxing beards. In Elizabethan England, facial hair of two weeks' growth was subject to a similar levy, but Peter's system was to be the reference point thereafter. Have either of you ever had a beard? You may remember this, yes. at university, I had the bold decision of, of growing quite a full beard and shaving off the moustache because I found it tickly. Very, very <laughs> weird to look at. <laughs> Which, having looked back at the photos, was a bad decision. It looked mental. Why didn't you say something? I, I, I told you all the time. Did you? say, yeah, but it's itchy, yeah. I, I should say that you look like a sort of kind of lorry driver that you really don't want to be picked up. Yes, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I, I have had a beard, I shave it off. But I suppose it, see, this idea of people paying if they had a beard, is that what it was you had to pay? How much was it? If you were a nobleman, 100 rubles. Right. If you okay. were an ordinary person, you had to pay a single kopeck. So it's a great time to be alive if you were sort of one of those teenagers that now gets embarrassed because they can't grow a beard. You know those people that yeah, sort of... Yeah, absolutely. This is the period you want to live in. So by the 20th century, beer taxes had, had largely fallen into abeyance and so it could be written up as facets of bygone times. But in 1907, a member of the New Jersey legislature seeking to capitalise on recent murders featuring apparently sinister bearded individuals sought to introduce a beard tax into the state. So this is in 1907. So the basic levy was a dollar a year, but if your beard got too long, then it was an extra $2 per inch. If you grew a goatee, then that was a subject, subject to a $10 charge. I get that one. What? Yeah, yeah that's, that's to protect public decency. I <laughs> yeah, think, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that should be reintroduced. <laughs> <laughs> well, historically, the beard was a sign of maturity, of adulthood, of wisdom and old age. So the clean-shaven were youthful, by contrast, and possibly still bachelors. Oh. Being a bachelor in many states in America in the 19th and early 20th centuries was a costly experience. So one subject to an additional burden of taxation. So although the Americans weren't the originators of these taxes, they'd been imposed in ancient Rome, in the Ottoman Empire of the 16th century, and in 17th century England, there was a particular enthusiasm for them. Now, in Argentina... The only way to escape paying the bachelor tax introduced there in 1900 was to, I love this, <laughs> was to make a marriage proposal and have it audibly rebuffed. <laughs> audibly? Yeah. No! <laughs> no way! No way! <laughs> oh, that's so unbelievable. No chance. Yeah. Can you imagine? So... There was a, so there was a tax, just to be clear, there's a tax for being single, for being a male and who is not with someone. Is that right? I think, I think it was a sort of a combination of taxes, yeah, yes. based on, on various aspects of single but life. But if you could prove that you tried to marry someone, then you'd be fine. 
it's interesting you say that the the loophole, right, or that you could escape the bachelor tax introduced there in 1900 in Argentina, the loophole of making a marriage proposal and having it audibly rebuffed, led to the creation of professional rejectors. Amazing women whose job it was to provide bachelors with their escape from the tax. <laughs> That is incredible. Oh, that's so good. But surely those women are building up a reputation. Yeah. Like, I asked her to marry she's Oh, pull yeah. the other one, mate. Turn 40 men down today. Yeah. <laughs> Make an absolute fortune. At the same spot in the town square. Every Saturday yeah, yeah. she's turning down 40 people. <laughs> My voice is gone, actually. I, uh, it's, it's, it's the fact that it has to be so audible. It's, um, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really getting me down. In 1821, Missouri was amongst the first in the United States to introduce a bachelor tax charging uh, single adult men a dollar for their freedom, which feels very, very unfair. A century later, the Republican governor of Montana, Joseph M. Dixon, signed a law authorising a $3 tax on all bachelors in the state between the ages of 21 and 50. The law caused an outcry and was eventually struck down by the state's Supreme Court a year later. Wow. I mean, what is what is their problem with bachelors? I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure. I'm sure these men were trying to find partners. What what what, what is this? Is this the idea that they want families and children? And this idea of what what is it? What, what's what's the sort of what's the idea behind it? Yeah, presumably that you'd want your local men folk, your young men folk, to uh, to settle down. Yeah. I mean, I was trying my best during my twenties for crying out loud, <laughs> and I was skint enough as it was. <laughs> I suppose if you did genuinely propose to someone and they said no, you could then claim I was only really doing this for the bachelor tax rate. You know, like it gives you a bit of a get out. I suppose. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So if you if you if didn't you, really yeah. ask her to marry yeah. me, I was just having a bloody laugh. Actually. Yeah, exactly. I, I guarantee there was a yeah. lot of people back down the pub claiming that's why they'd done it. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that I, I, I bought her flowers and gifts and sort of, <laughs> you know, hung, hung around her workplace for months and, and all that kind of, wrote her love letters and, and then asked her to marry me in, in front of everyone in the town and she rebuffed me. But and had I, the tattoo I, done. I, I sort of did it for a laugh, really, just because just, just there's bloody tax and I don't love her at all and I'm fine. The uh, Republican governor of Montana, Joseph M. Dixon, I mentioned a second ago, well, that was a really costly blunder for him because those who had paid the levy the state accounts for 1921-22 show it raised more than $200,000 were to be refunded. So for months, Montana newspapers carried lists of those bachelors who got their $3 back. It could have been worse. The original bill proposed by T.H. MacDonald of Flathead, Montana, had made provision for a $5 bachelor's tax, apparently to create a state fund for widows. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. Which is clever. Which is... Yes, quite. Yes, quite. Quite interesting. That now the Montana story was not the end of the U.S. experiment with such legislation. Imagine very briefly that you've paid your tax. You think, well, at least that's done now. Nobody needs to. At least nobody needs to know I'm a bachelor anymore. And then your name is printed in a list of people who owes, <laughs> yeah. owed their money back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you spend any bachelor tax yeah. refund? Yes, actually, no. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. Also, I think we can agree. Off. Meeting someone is like it's a much easier if you're feeling relaxed and good about yourself. I think yeah, normally yeah, yeah. being yourself and being comfortable is probably quite a healthy part of any kind of dating process. Not knowing that if you can't pull this off, it's going to have a financial impact on your year. Yeah. <laughs> Date one. Would you like a drink? Yes, I'd like a glass of wine, please. No problem. I'll get them in. Glass of wine, pint of lager. Thank you very much. By the way. If we if we get on, this could be superb for me in terms of tax breaks. 
There'll be another glass of wine from that, where that came from. The, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Where that came from. <laughs> I need this. Yeah, absolutely. Remarkably, the Montana story is not the end of the US experiment with such legislation. So in 1934, mm. I mean, that's less than 100 years ago, Yeah, California legislators debated whether to introduce a $25 bachelor tax in response to low birth rates. So the proposal galvanised the state's various bachelor clubs who responded by arguing that it was an economic fallacy and that we need good, honest bachelors in California more than we need the receipts. Because also in the sort of pre-Hinge and Tinder age, much harder to meet women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The saloon. The saloon. (laughs) (laughs) Gunfights happening all the time, (laughs) if the films I've seen uh, are to be believed. $25 yearly tax for being single, if what's suggested. That's a lot of money. That does feel like a lot. What is that? What's the equivalent to that now? Let's find out. I'll quickly look it up. What year was that? 1934. You're just going to go out and find someone, and you're just going to go, look, do me a favour. So it's equivalent to around $565 today. A lot of money. It is. It's a big old tax for being single, isn't it? Not not going to be great for the old self-esteem either. (laughs) When you see that, leave your account. I'd be tempted to find another bachelor and just go, should we just say we're together? Yeah, that's the thing. Well, homosexuality laws in the US, obviously, you, that wouldn't have been an option. Ah. It would be an option now, obviously. Okay. Well, a single female, yeah. then. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least, but what's in it for her? Which you, can, well, I'll, I'll, you can have $200, so at least it's better than my 565 yes, I would okay. be losing otherwise. God, what's such, uh, such bleak maths? <laughs> and also you'll notice slightly less than half as well, which is yeah. a little bit... I don't know what that's, you can have exactly half. Well, it probably didn't help the would-be taxes of bachelors in California that the most prominent example of such a tax at that time was in Mussolini's Italy. So the USSR similarly enacted a bachelor tax. There also applied to women uh, in 1941. It remained in force until the demise of the USSR in 1991 with the money raised directed into funds to support mothers and children. So at least it's going to a good cause. Wow. So, so when did that exist? What was it, what were the years there? Between 1941 and 1991. Oh, wow. So wow. it's a, a long old time. Yeah. That's really hard, isn't it? Because you, you basically... You're so incentivised to get on the pull. Yeah. Non-stop. Every year that bill's coming through if you haven't done it, you haven't done the business. And it's pressurised enough. <laughs> Eventually you meet someone and they say, where should we go for your first our first date? And you say, I can't really afford to take you anywhere because I'm 30 years of paying a bachelor tax now. <laughs> I'm absolutely skin. Soon we'll just have to stand here and have a chat, if that's all right. <laughs> she goes, no, thank you. But- this date is finished. But if you could tell HMRC that we're together as soon as you can, that would really, really help you. All right, that was Laws. Once again, thank you so much for your support for the podcast so far. Your messages mean the world, and please do keep those five-star reviews coming in wherever you can. It means a lot. It makes such a difference to the show. Um, But also, Tom, as this show obviously looks back at the past and trying to decide quite how awful it was we'd love to hear from you which period of history would you least like to have lived in and why let's get the ball rolling with that it's an important big question on a history podcast so send in your reasons and send them to hello at ohwhatatime.com and we will be back next week with yet more history fun thank you so much for listening bye-bye bye thank you very much goodbye goodbye